There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 77. Today in the show, we're joined by Jeff Sturgis, and we're talking about cold fronts, properly timing hunts, and killing pre-rut and rutting bucks. Right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, brought to you by Sitka Gear. Now today we've got a great episode, and the goal today is to prime and prepare you for the upcoming pre-rut and rutting action that's just days away. I mean folks, things are about to get crazy, and I'm pumped, and Dan's pumped, and if you've got any blood running through your vein, through your, I can't talk. How, hey, wait, how crazy is it going to get, first of all? That's what I want to know. I mean, it's going to get crazy. I can't even talk. Man. I can't even talk. Yeah. But what I was trying to say, Dan, is that if anyone out there listening, if they've got blood in their veins, if they've got some oxygen in their lungs, I'm thinking they're pretty pumped up right now, too. So if that is the case, and I think it's the case for you and me, that's for sure. Our guest is going to be someone that we want to listen to because we've got Jeff Sturgis on the show, and he's going to fill us in on some great ideas for taking advantage of the weather at this time of year, and he's going to talk to us about how he approaches the pre-rut and rutting timeframes, which is a topic that he actually wrote about in the upcoming November issue of Outdoor Life, and he's really an expert on this. So if you're not familiar with Jeff, he is an outdoor writer, author, and whitetail habitat consultant. And, you know, over the past five years or so, he's been one of the greatest influences on me as a deer hunter. So all that being said, if you haven't heard from Jeff before, you should go back and listen to episode number 11 at some point because we did have him on already. But in that conversation, we talked about habitat and food plots. But today we're talking hunting. But of course, before we get Jeff on the line, Dan, you and me do have some catching up to do. Right. And, um, I don't know. I know this is off topic, what I'm going to tell you right now. And I probably should have told you this before we got on the air, but can I, can I, I, can I tell you something? Yeah. I just got an email from someone 
last week who okay. said that who said that our pre guest BS sessions are lame and unrelated to the topics that we're supposed to be talking about. Okay, well, so give me then, that guy's address and I'll go have a personal <laughs> conversation with him. So proceed with what, what you're about to say <laughs> because I'm sure this is going to be right up that guy's alley. <laughs> right. So you know when you make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and you know you drop just like you're taking a bite out of it and you know you drop a little piece of jelly somewhere and you can't find it. Is this related to another dream? No, this just happened because I just finished. The reason why I was late to log in was because I ju- I made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So I dropped the, this little piece of jelly and now I can't find it. So it's probably in the carpet somewhere, which will just be another reason for my wife to get mad at me. Well, that's not good. Uh, but anyway, it's deer hunting season. Tell me more about this sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Is it crunchy or creamy peanut butter? It was it was creamy, um, and it was towards the end of the loaf, so I had to use one regular piece and one heel, which, uh, to be honest, is like my favorite. I love using the heels on a sandwich. I'm still stuck on the creamy peanut butter thing. I, I have a hard time dealing with creamy peanut butter people. Really? So you're I, see, I'm. I don't know. I guess I'm far enough into my relationship where I just let my wife make all the difficult decisions. Uh, so she likes creamy. That means I like creamy. I get you know it. I mean? This is this is you not having any spine anymore and dealing with crappy peanut butter. You're damn right. <laughs> because it avoids conflict. And the more more conflict I can avoid means the more pulling power I have towards hunting season. It all comes back to that, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. But you're right. Guess what's coming up? The freaking rut. The rut express is coming. I'm stoked. I'm, I'm, dude. I have oxygen in my lungs and I have blood in my veins, and I feel like I should. I should just be like, I feel like heavy metal is going off in my head all the time now. For me, it's it's not heavy metal. It's like techno, hard I'm just, techno. I'm jamming. I'm fist pumping, and I've got like strobe lights going off. Right. Flat build hats. <laughs> you know me. Yep. Cool. So, <laughs> <laughs> and unrelatable to the topic. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but but really, we do have some updates before we talk to Jeff. That's right. That are related to deer hunting because, at least I know you were busy doing your wedding crap that you always like to do. But I was hunting in Iowa right. this past weekend. Let me just get mine out of the way first, okay? Let's do it. All right. Friday, right? All day at work, super pumped to get out, left two hours early, drove down to my main hunting spot, right? Go all the way back to the end of the property. And I'm just, I haven't hunted this, this piece all season long. The loggers are done. I get out of my truck. I start getting ready. And what do I hear? Chainsaws. So I walk closer to this, this field edge where I was kind of thinking I was going to cross this field and go into this bedding area. Uh, and that is where they were chainsawing. So the farmer has let, I think three or four different guys come in and of all the treetops that were left from the loggers, she's given these guys permission to cut wood and take this wood out. Not ideal for you. Nope. Not ideal for me. So I go to my backup plan, right? Friday night backup plan. You know, the corn has not been harvested out of this, uh, field where, You know, I get a lot of early season movement and um, there's a giant buffer strip that, you know, in the summertime and early fall and early October is a great bedding area for these deer. And sure enough, there were no deer there. (laughs) 
So I didn't see one deer from the week, the entire weekend, because the next morning I said, okay, I'm going to lay off this property. I'm going to save it. And I have this, this grand idea where I'm going into a fresh sit on Sunday, right? So Sunday comes and I go, all right, I'm hunting. And my wife goes, well, I have a lot of orders to do. I'd really appreciate it if you could, uh, you know, come home instead of hunt. Yeah. So I, I did a huge eye roll and like really thought about, okay, what am I going to do? So I decided, you know what? I'm just going to go home today at work. I sent my wife the itinerary for the rest of the year. I said, I'm going to be hunting (laughs) this day, this day, this day, this day, this day, taking off this day. I'll be back in time to have the kids trick or treat my brother's wedding. So I am going to hunt the entire second week of November. That's good. In two days, the first week. So less good, but it's not ideal, but it's more than I believe other women would give their husbands. Fair enough. Take what you can get. Yep. And, and, and Mark's turn. Mark's turn. Well, you know, I was pumped up because that Mm -hmm. cold front hit in Iowa. So I was heading to Iowa Yep. and I'll try to make this quick, but I did a lot of thinking trying to decide, okay, where am I going to hunt that first night? When I get there, because again, as we've talked about, I've never hunted this property before. I've only scouted it for for like an hour, two hours when I got to walk through it the day after I got permission on it. And then I've just looked at maps and stuff. So I drove up Thursday night, camped Thursday night, woke up Friday morning, drove to the other property, my kind of tier two property, and was going to check that trail camera and maybe hang another camera and scout a little bit and just get a feel for it, see if it was worth checking out more. Well... First, the camera I had out there malfunctioned, so it just took a bunch of random pictures all summer. Buzzkill. Buzzkill. Um, and then number two, while I'm checking those pictures, tons of people are coming in and out of the property, and one of them was a pickup truck with a bunch of muzzleloader hunters who were there for the early muzzleloader season. They said, oh, yeah, we're going to be walking all over the place. Uh, we're going to be hunting here this weekend, blah, blah. So I was like, all right, well, that's not going to be too good for me. I'll move on to option number two, which was where I really thought I'd be focusing anyways. So headed to the other property I have permission on. And the day before I've been kind of brainstorming with my buddy, Corey, who, you know, and we've been debating all sorts of different ideas, about where would be the best place to, to sit that first night and, and that weekend really, because my goal with this trip last weekend was, you know, mainly to learn some things. Uh, I'm essentially preparing for my big rut trip. So I wanted to be able to observe areas, hopefully see a lot of deer activity and then check those trail cameras, and then finally maybe do a little more scouting, hang some stands, hang some trail cameras, so that everything's kind of as prepared as, as best as possible for my big trip. So that said, I ended up deciding on a spot where I could hunt that ended up being pretty good, not only from an observation standpoint, but I also thought from a hunting standpoint, because this cold front was hitting, so I thought, okay, there's definitely going to be a lot of deer movement. So I found what I thought was a really good-looking transition area from what I thought was probably one of the best bedding areas on this farm, to what I thought would be a prime food source. And in between was this transition area that I could get to easily and safely with that wind direction. And there was a pond there too. So I thought, hey, I got in between food and bedding. I got a pond. I got a great wind. I got great view. This could be pretty good. And it was. That first night I saw tons of deer and it ended up being a lot better than I even thought. Like the tree I picked ended up being like, I wouldn't, having known what I know now, I would not move the tree I picked initially. It is exactly where every deer coming out of these bedding areas all funnel past. 
it's uh, way better of a job picking a tree than I usually do. <laughs> so tons of does piling out. They all funnel past this tree, check out this pond, some little bucks, more does, little bucks. And then right at like just before last light, I look to my left and there's just this massive white frame. And it was one of those just instant shooter, like instant holy crap type of buck. Yeah. And the issue, though, was that it was getting really close to dark. And I, I looked at him, and I looked around me, and I'm like, man, I've got, like, less than five minutes for him to close this distance. And if he doesn't, I'm not going to be able to get a shot. He's, like, 80 yards now. And so I'm just sitting there, like, praying, please hurry up and get over here. Unfortunately, he just slowly was picking his way through this tall grass. He'd stop, look around, nibble, look around at other deer, and just slowly meander in his way. And uh, I tried to grunt once just as I was like kind of a Hail Mary, like maybe I could speed him up, just do a little light grunt, just, you know, didn't want to do anything crazy, but thought I'd give it a shot. And uh, he didn't really seem to give much about it. So he just kind of slowly moved through. It's getting darker and darker. Shooting light passes. I know, okay, it's it's done now. He, he got into some brush, and then another couple minutes later, all of a sudden he pops out of the brush, and he's right in front of me, 20 yards broadside. And there's no way I can shoot him, but I can see him clear as day through my binoculars at 20 yards right there. So I just got to watch just like big bodied, mature, huge eight pointer. Just uh, from I know I know you see a lot of big eight pointers there and living and hunting in Iowa, but for me this is the biggest eight I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, I think he was probably mid 140s. Um, just That's a big eight pointer. Big frame, big frame. Um, so that was sweet. I was stoked. I was just pumped up on adrenaline the rest of the night. And I ended up having to wait like almost an hour after dark because he hung around for so long. He just slowly worked past me and then went around me. But I guess I watched him for probably 35 minutes, maybe longer, um, until he finally took off into the timber, walked in the timber in a way, and I was able to sneak out. Um, so I was pretty excited. But the next day I hunted the morning and the evening, and I didn't what? end up. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah, I hunted the morning. You hunted the morning? Yep, I did. Oh, man. I know it's against my religion, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought, you know, I've got limited sits here, and it's not like I'm going to overpressure this because this is one sit of an entire month that I've been there. And that huge cold front came through. It was in the 20s. And uh thought, hey, it's worth a shot. And, you know, the more I talk to people in some of these states like Iowa, it's a lot different than where I hunt primarily in Michigan and Ohio. You can get away with a little more. And uh, so I thought, hey, I'll give it a shot. So I did. Still saw a decent number of deer, just not uh, not the big boy again. And the evening sit was looking good. I ended up hunting the same place I did the first night. was hoping that big guy would come back through. Again, saw a bunch of does and little bucks. But this time, like 10, 15 minutes before last light, a bunch of kids on four-wheelers and dirt bikes drove around all of the cornfields all around me, screaming and driving and racing around, scared every single deer away. So that did was... Did you try to shoot those kids? You know, I, I didn't think that'd be best since I think they were the owner's kids, okay. and that might not be so good for my relationship there. So <laughs> that's a good idea. Yeah, so I uh, I let them go. Passed. <laughs> you passed. Passed on those. <laughs> 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 and then the next day, I decided just to do a little work uh, on the farm, just a little prep work. So at midday, I snuck into a couple spots, did little speed scouting, hung a bunch of trail cameras, hung a stand, got out of there and headed home. So. Nice. I'm now ready for the rut, and I'll be back in 10 days. Nice, nice, nice. Well, it sounds to me like you got um, a little information from that uh, from that weekend. 
I did. I confirmed where a couple doe bedding areas are, so I feel good about that. I got, um, you know, a better idea of where other hunters are. I did find another couple tree stands, and uh, one of these tree stands, the guy actually cut an ATV path right in front of my trail camera. And so I have him on camera going in to set the tree stand. I see the tree stand. Um, so I know he, he went in there in early September, hung the tree stand, but he has not been back to hunt yet. So I'm hoping, fingers crossed, maybe he's just a gun hunter. Yeah. Um, and that was the only sign. Those two tree stands kind of almost next to each other are the only stands that I've seen other than the first two I saw in the summer on the other side of the farm. So hopefully that's not uh, it's not going to be a big issue, but uh, we will see. I checked the camera, like I said. I got that big eight-pointer on camera. And then I got two other really nice 10-pointers. So uh, they're not going to be competitors in our trail camera contest. So it's basically Ohio Bucks versus Iowa Bucks that you got. So we're going to have to post that online here soon. This um, could be a precursor to the uh, to the Big Ten National Championship. <laughs> you're right. Uh, you're, you're, yeah, how do we not talk about that? Go green. Go, Go Hawks. Undefeated. Both of us. I know. It's not... we, don't, we don't play each other this year, but uh... – no. Now we could play we, each we other could at the play national each other. championship. Well, we could play each other in Big Ten championship. Yep, that's that's what I meant. Yep. Yeah. If we beat Ohio State, and if you, what you got Nebraska still, and I think a couple other teams, but oh, uh, we have the, we have one of the easiest schedules. You in, do in all of football. I'd be surprised if you don't. You should win out. We should knock on wood. Yeah. So that's gonna be interesting. In Michigan State, you know, we had a, the craziest ending of a game ever this weekend. I literally was I, I let out like a yell when I saw the final result on my phone because I had I turned it off with ten seconds left. I've been following like ESPN's GameCast on my phone, yeah. And I saw ten seconds. It was fourth down. They're in a punt. I was like, ah, I was you know I'm I'm a super 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 huge fan. So I was pretty upset. But I'm like, all right, I'm gonna focus and I'm just kind of gonna kill a buck so I don't feel bad all night. Put my phone away. And then those guys drove their ATVs all around. So then I'm like, ah, I pull up my phone again. And then the final came up and I was like, ah, what? <laughs> it was insane. <laughs> so yeah, go green, go Hawks. And we are running a little late and we need to call Jeff now, Dan. Right now. So let's, let's uh, stop our John and let's give Jeff a call. But before we get a hold of Jeff, we do need to pause briefly for a word from our partners at Sitka Gear. And as we do every week, we're hearing from Sitka product category leader, Dennis Zuck. And today I asked Dennis about the new camo pattern that Sitka launched this year for whitetail hunters and how that was developed. Um, yeah, it's a great question. And, um, you know, we, we, we here at Sitka, when we look at developing something, we get really specific. And when we developed our original forest pattern, we were as specific as 17 yards in a tree, 20 foot up, you know? So we were, we were looking at that, that time you get the opportunity to, to harvest that, that, that magnificent, you know, deer, um, going back, you know, we thought more about the entire process and thinking about, well, that first, that deer comes in at 80 yards, maybe is the first time he could see you or, you know, that whole engagement process and coming back around that thought process, thinking about both that micro and macro and the, and the theories that, uh, some of the Colonel and your work. Um, we believe by lightening it up, considering more the the, the sky contrast, um, making sure that you know as you're further out that you're still breaking up really really well. Not that the other didn't do a great job, but this is just a you know amplified version of that. Um, we saw that as an opportunity to just just continue to evolve, and um, I think this new pattern is absolutely an evolution. Uh, it looks different because. You know, we, we consider that micro macro and all those in the environments in our consideration, but in two different distances. So 
um, you know, we actually we verticalize a pattern versus horizontalize a pattern, whether I'm going to hunt it from a ground or whether I'm going to hunt it from a tree. You know, so when you start shifting and moving things and orienting the pattern to think about the angle that something's looking at it, it starts to get kind of interesting. And, and I think that's made these patterns interesting. So something I've heard you mention before is this micro and macro patterns in the camouflage. And that's seems to be a really important thing when it comes to developing a camouflage pattern, but I don't know if a lot of people understand what that means. Can you tell us what micro and macro patterns are and why that's important? So, so yeah, absolutely. So the macro is the larger blocks, right? So when you're further away from something, you need these larger blocks to break up and disrupt a pattern. Um, kind of like, you know, the, the lines on a tiger, if that makes sense. Right. So that's your macro. And as you move closer and I start to see lines and I start to see depth and I start to understand what that object really is well that's your macro that's where the smaller pieces come in and that's your cheetah in a tree you know so that's the the really fine texture things that that you see and you know it looks like part of my environment or or it doesn't if that's what your goal is but it's it's combining those two that makes a really effective pattern so that micro macro philosophy is something we we use quite a bit and as does the military as does you know people who are really trying to to put a lot of science behind their development. So there you have it. Some interesting insight for you to ponder about the science of camouflage. And if you're interested in checking out that new pattern from Sitka or any of their other clothing, visit SitkaGear.com. And now it's time to get Jeff on the line. But a quick small apology. We did have some issues with the phone service for Jeff, so the audio is a little bit scratchy at times. We apologize for that, but I think you will enjoy the content of this episode so much that you shouldn't mind. So, as I mentioned, let's give Jeff a call. All right, with us now on the line is Jeff Sturgis. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Yeah, thanks. It's uh, great to be back. Yeah, we are excited to have you back, too. And, you know, as, as we were talking about a little bit earlier, back in the spring of 2014 was the last time we talked to you on the podcast in episode number 11. Most of that was about food plots and habitat work. So today, we want to grill you about the other half of your whitetail expertise, which is hunting. And as I talked about with Dan earlier, you know, I've learned a lot from you when it comes to properly timing my hunts. And that's a big focus of what we were hoping to chat with you about today. So I think without beating around the bush, there's a lot of people, me, Dan, and everybody else listening, that are really pumped up to hear from you on this topic. So I think we should just jump into it. And I'm curious. <laughs> I've read a lot in your books and on your website about properly timing when you hunt and where you hunt. Can you share with us why you talk about that so much? Why you think that that is so important? Yeah, I can. Uh, it's a real passion of mine because I used to. Now I live down where I where I hunted for the last fourteen years in Southwest Wisconsin, but I used to make the annual trek. Uh, sometimes even every two weeks. I would drive seven hours down here to southwest Wisconsin and and hunt, uh, sometimes just for a two, three-day hunt. And what I found was that, you know, we'd be gone for two weeks, we'd come back, and the woods were just full of scrapes and rubs, and they weren't there before, and here we're coming down on an 80-degree uh, weekend, and the uh, hunting was really poor. And we could tell we were missing things. And so over the years, it uh, became apparent to me that, um, you know, I had a I had a business at the time. I was a real estate appraiser, and um, I had a young family, and so it was really important for me to prioritize my time. And I found that I was better off 
looking toward certain days that returned a high value for the sit, um, even if that meant only hunting one or two days instead of three or four days. So it was really more about not only uh, uh, prioritizing my time, but also uh, maximizing my opportunities so that when I did go into the woods, I had a much higher likelihood of actually running into a mature buck. Now, I am not a poker player or a card player, but it's no different. Um, I've watched it on TV. <laughs> That's about <laughs> it. But uh, I, uh, and I, yeah, a little bit here and there at Deer Camp. But for the most part, when you're playing poker, you're playing the odds. And so the guys that know the odds inside and out can calculate that when they play their next move or when they, when they need a card, they know exactly what they're looking for. They know what uh, all the cards that are on the table. Uh, they might even be able to read the other people playing so that when they make a decision, it's based on odds. And that's the same that I want to do when I enter the woods. It's not that, you know, that any time isn't a good time to be in the woods. Um, it's just that when I go out to actually hunt and go after mature buck, I really want to tilt those odds in my favor. So, you know, maximizing time, prioritizing at the same time, there's a lot of times, even my friends around here, they'll look at a long weekend they have, and they'll say, you know, is it better if I hunt on Saturday, Sunday, Monday? Should I take a Friday off or a Monday? And really what they're trying to balance is not only work but family too. And so it might be that well, they're better off spending a Saturday morning with their family and uh, maybe hunting uh, Saturday night, Sunday, and then Monday instead of taking Friday on a poor day, forcing on Saturday and Sunday. And, uh, you know, so it's really uh, gives you that opportunity to balance your time a little bit better too. Yeah. This, this, this concept here that you're talking about and me and Dan have talked about a lot and we've talked about it on other podcasts too, but I want to keep on, I keep on bringing this up because I think at least for me personally, and I think for a lot of guys is probably one of the, if not the most important kind of revelation that's come to me as a deer hunter that has changed how my success has looked is, is focusing on identifying the high quality sits and having fewer of those, but being more high quality and reducing the number of low quality sits. Like, just like you said, playing the odds hunt when the odds are highest, stay out and keep the pressure off when the odds are low. And I think that has changed everything for me. And yeah. I, and yeah, that's, that's true. So true. So with that being the case then, you're talking about, you know, timing these hunts. And I know that you spend a lot of time, maybe more than anyone I've listened to, um, kind of micro analyzing some of these things. Um, and I really enjoy that. And I found it really fascinating. We've talked to a couple of guys like Mark Drury. We talked to this about a lot. He seems to do a lot of this type of analysis, which we've all really enjoyed hearing from mm -hmm. him. Um, but for you, right. when you're looking at timing these hunts, can you share with us the criteria that you're looking for? And then from there, I want to dive into some of those criteria, the specifics of each, but at the high level, what criteria do you pay attention to when trying to determine what are my high quality sets? And, I, and I, I'll jump into that in just a second. I just want to back up for just a real brief, uh, brief second here. Sure. One of the reasons for determining that high value set is what I found the less, uh, you know, it's, less is more and all that but one of the reasons is because you're placing a lot less pressure on your property and so if you're only hunting the high value sits you're not going out and and spending sits on high quality stands or high quality potential sits um, that just aren't there yet and so you're not educating the the does that might be in the area even a mature buck or two uh, they're just not used to you sitting in those stands leaving your scent coming by your scent by your tree three hours after dark and so in that way you're keeping your stands fresh 
and a fresh stand is the best stand. And so I've found that stands that are average can turn into your best stand on the property just simply because you haven't been over to that little corner yet. And so going forward, when I see these opportunities, uh, you know, coming up you know, for those high-value sits, and I'm looking for, number one, a major temperature drop. Um, number two, I'm looking for a difference in, in uh, wind speeds. And so it's not that um, you can't have a moderate wind and go out and shoot shoot a buck, but to me it's all about uh, uh, the difference in wind. Say, for example, drop from 50 to 25 miles an hour is just about as important as a drop from 30 miles to uh, 25 miles an hour. So it's really about that change. And same with the temperature, looking for extreme weather conditions to help set up that uh, that potential great high-quality day. And you're looking for a string of really boring or poor days ahead of time uh, to also set up that, that high-quality day. So it's almost like the, up to about four or five days, as long as you have some poor days um, in a row, then when a, when a good day presents itself, then it's time to hit the woods and those deer will be ready to uh, experience that good day too. So are you saying then, like, for example, the this past weekend a huge cold front came through and the four yeah. previous days had an average temperature that was maybe 15 degrees warmer than that high on the day that the cold front came through so you're looking at a, a large period of time before the the actual cold front yes yeah and it could be even just a day or two that helps to serve to set up that especially I think the deer and the mature bucks are, are a lot, you know, that roller coaster is going up and down a lot more during the rut. But especially when you're looking at October 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, and you have those poor days in a row, man, when the 15th drops and there's some heavy winds on the front side of it and maybe even some pounding rain and thunderstorms, when it, cal- when it calms, the, the high pressure is rising and uh, it's those blue skies and cool temperatures, then, man, that those four or five days of poor weather really served to set up that day. So, Jeff, you mentioned temperature drops and a change in wind, but a couple other criteria we hear when it comes to looking at, you know, what are our high-value sits. A couple criteria we hear about a lot are the moon and barometric pressure. Do you pay attention to either of those at all? Yeah, I do. Um, I do the moon, and... There's, there's a lot of scientific evidence out there as far as the timing of the rut and when does enter estrus, and a lot of it goes against the moon phase theories as far as, you know, the moon inducing some timing um, of the rut or the start of the pre-rut. But I do firmly, whether you believe in that or not, I do firmly believe that the moon has a lot to do with feeding timings. And so, for example, deer feed five times in a 24-hour period, and if there's a full, bright, rising moon, it sure seems like they feed a lot later in the evening. And so on a full moon evening, um, you can count on those deer to be, you know, a little bit lower value sit, for example, because the deer just aren't going to come out um, as early as they would on a dark moon night or a moon uh, night where that moon isn't rising. At least that's what I've experienced. Now, the following morning, though, that's when it really gets interesting for me because it seems like, you know, kind of imagine those deer feeding five times in a 24-hour period. Their big feeding is in the dinner time, in the evening, in the afternoon, and so when those deer are feeding heavy at that time, the next time is a light time, the next time is a little bit heavier. And so there's a little bit of a roller coaster cycle that I think that moon induces. And so what that sets up to me is a late morning time, uh, sometimes noontime feeding. And so I believe, and I've, I've experienced some really high-quality mature buck movement 
during that late morning time when there's a full moon rising. And so I pay attention to the moon for those factors. And then when you get into the barometric pressure, um, you know, really I don't pay attention to it as much, um, but I do. And the reason for that is I'm looking for that big cold front to come through, clearing skies, cool conditions, and when you have those conditions, you have a high barometric pressure. So it's not that I'm looking at, you know, looking for that barometric pressure as much as I'm looking at the conditions, and if those conditions are there, then the high barometric pressure is there, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, so, so the things you're looking for, those days after the cold front, naturally those tend to be those high-pressure days. So, yes, definitely. So, yeah. so then here's the next thing I'm curious about, because, right, I think we hear about this type of thing, paying attention to cold fronts, looking for those changes in wind speed. Like It seems like you like when it calms down a little bit, and the high-pressure days. We hear about a lot of these things, but sometimes it's hard to understand how to actually take that and put it into play. So something I've seen you do the last couple of weeks is you're putting out this weekly forecast where you talk about what the weather is going to look like in the coming week or two weeks, and then which of those days coming up are high value sits and what that means for you as a hunter. Could you possibly walk us through as, as best as you can remember right now, what that looks like for the coming days here? Um, is kind sure. of an example. Um, and this, yeah. and for, for context, this podcast will be going live on this Thursday. So maybe okay. if you, if you remember what the forecast looks, could you talk to us about what you're looking at with this upcoming weather and how you implement some of the things that we've just talked about? Yes. Yeah. And I have that, that weather forecast burned in my head pretty well, but, and I, this time when I pulled up for lacrosse, Wisconsin, last time I pulled up Chicago, I was actually thinking about flipping over to the Detroit area or Lansing or Ann Arbor uh, next week. I like but that. regardless, <laughs> so that'll be coming your way anyway. Perfect. But um, the uh, the big thing with um, this week is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we had three days in the low 70s to mid-70s, at least around here in this area. And really across the same general line, um, moving east and west, there's not that much difference. There's going to be a lag time of about a day, I would say, from here in lower Michigan, and then another day over to northern Pennsylvania and New York. Um, but really, you know, things happening, for the most part, the weather's moving west east or west to northeast. So that being said, this week we had those three warmer days, and then here we have about a 10-degree drop on Thursday. And so those three warm days, to me, really helped set up uh, that Thursday drop. And you could say, you know, if it was four or five days of, of poor weather or warm weather, um, if it was a, you know, if you had a monster storm moving through on Wednesday, that might make a really big difference, but still a pretty quality, a high quality day. And especially that's going to be uh, the 22nd of October. And that happens to be the date that I've shot a couple really nice bucks, five and six year old bucks, had a really nice opportunity on another, got a nice buck on the 20th, on the 27th, another five, six year old. So we're starting to get into that time where I'm, I'm really getting pumped. And I think I talked to you about that this week too, Mark. <laughs> you know, it's a yeah. big buck on cam and, and uh, on the cameras and it's, it's getting exciting. Um, then on Friday, what's really cool is, um, so Thursday showing a, let's say a low of 39 and a high of 60. Uh, let's say on Wednesday it was a high of 71. So there's 11 degree temperature drop. Um, I believe the, the morning temperature now, it's, when you look at a weather forecast, and you know maybe some of the listeners don't realize this, but when you see the low for Thursday, that's actually Friday morning's uh, temperature. And so it's a little deceiving because if you look at Wednesday, the low was 49. That's actually Thursday morning. 
So Friday morning has a forecasted low of actually 39. And so 10 degree temperature drop from morning to morning, I'm looking for that from the, you know, daytime highs to daytime high. And in some areas, they're actually calling for a little bit of uh, rain or precipitation, maybe some higher winds on uh, Wednesday to Thursday. Um, even looking into Chicago, I think the, the high quality days of Friday there, where that will help to actually enhance the, uh, the value of that day. And going forward, I think the, uh, there's a little bit of moisture on that Friday, Saturday time, and another little bit of drop on, uh, on Sunday. And so I'm looking at, like if I was planning out this week, you know, I'd really want to uh, make a priority of hunting this Thursday, Friday, because of the first couple of days after the front, there's good quality temperature drops, a little bit of weather to serve to set that up, and then there's a little bit of a bump where you have some, a little bit of a warmer day, um, some inclement weather, rain, and then clearing and high pressure on Sunday. So if I'm planning my sits, I might spend uh, Saturday with family. Um, it looks like Friday night's going to be pretty wet, not to say that, that you couldn't shoot a mature buck in the rain, certainly, but if I'm planning my sits and I have four or five that I really want to get out, I'm, gonna, I'm actually planning uh, Friday or Thursday morning, Thursday night, Friday morning, and then I'll sit on Sunday as well. So, and, and then looking ahead, and this is, you know, looking out a week and a half, um, the, uh, there's a really nice drop, I think it's next Saturday or Sunday, where you have pretty steady weather, it looks like, next week, and then a major drop around Halloween. So it's still a little ways out. The window of air is probably, you know, really high, uh, probably, uh, you know, 10%, uh, 15% accuracy rating, but at the same time, I'm really looking forward to that next drop right around Halloween, which is prime time in the northern part of the uh, Midwest. Yeah, absolutely. That's going to be a great time to be in the tree. Now, looking, though, at this most or this most kind of upcoming weekend, so you talked about that cold front hitting today, that the, air, the day that this podcast is going live is Thursday. So that cold front's hitting Thursday. You said Thursday, Friday could be good sits, and then maybe again Sunday. Um this time of year, the 20, you know, 24th, 25th, 26th, give or take around this part of the year in October, how are you approaching those hunts at this time to take advantage of this good condition, these good conditions? Where are you hunting? What are you thinking about when choosing those stand sites? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm looking at total pre-rut hunting. And what I mean by that is really the bucks to me are not moving that far. And I have to excuse me if this is a, a poor example or a, crash example, but, um, you know, it'd be like there's 30 girls in a nightclub bar or whatever, and there's 10 guys going in and, and, uh, <laughs> that's a time where it's, uh, you know, pretty easy to meet a girl. Um, and that's to me, unless you're Dan, unless you're hey, Dan, uh, he struggles. That's funny you say that because I yeah. used the same ana- analogy a while ago. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. I used that with a client and he said, I don't see anything wrong with that example, but anyways, um, <laughs> That uh, it's it's kind of like that for the pre-rut. You know, these big boys already have their fall rain, range established. They have where they want to eat, where they want to stay during the day, their bedding areas, and they have some does nearby. And it's not that they have to have those does, just the way it works. They, the does are right next to that high-quality food, uh, good cover, and then those bucks are, aren't far behind them. And so they're already established, and when one of those does starts to get, get a little, little uh, ruddy, then uh, it's those bucks, they... You know, they can pick up on that. There's a lot of does that will start coming into heat. And those first few does are pretty easy for them to find. And they don't really need to move around too much. And so 
Um, at the same time, right before that happens, they're going to become more active. And I know just in the last three days, I've had a lot of scrapes pop up in and around the properties where I hunt, and that's not even going in the woods much. That's just, just on the exterior edges. So what I'm looking at is, for one, those bucks aren't going to move a long ways, so I'm not really I'm not going to sit all day. Um, I just don't think there's a lot of value in sitting here in the middle of the day unless you have to get into an area that you can't get out until after dark. Um, so I'm placing a high priority in the morning near bedding areas. So I'm trying to get within 100 to 150 yards of a mature buck's bedding area, knowing that his range might expand from an acre to 10 to 15 acres during the morning, especially when there's cooler temperatures. At the same time in the evening, if I sit in that bedding area, then it's going to be a pretty poor hunt the closer it gets to dark because that buck is then turning his attention towards the evening food sources, the social areas where all the does and the doe family groups are moving in the other bucks, and he wants to leave that bedding area and go to that food source. So if I'm still in that bedding area, then the closer it gets to dark, the less chance that I have seen a buck. So I find it best to prioritize my sits and, and increase that value by sitting in a morning area that relates to a bedding area and then an evening area that relates to a food source. doesn't necessarily mean I'm sitting in the bedding area or in the food source, but I'm pretty close. So, how, so that's, that's more the pre-rut. So how are you choosing, you know, okay, again, we're, we're talking about how we're prioritizing, you know, different days. We prioritize days, but then how do you prioritize a certain bedding area or a certain food source. Cause I'm sure, you know, you're looking at your farm and you have done something to know, okay, I think there's bedding here. I think there's food here. But then the next question that naturally people are thinking through is, okay, I know I want to be by a bedding area in the morning, or I know I want to be by a good food source. Then they start saying, okay, which one? And so I think we've talked about trail cameras. We talk about scouting. We talk about yeah. sightings. What of all those, if any, or anything else are you using to then choose the the specific food source you're hunting in the evening? Well, I, I do love my trail cameras. And for one, it shows me if there's mature bucks on the property or not. It shows me when they come on the property, when they don't. It shows me if they're coming during the day or at night. Um, but at the same time, the direction they're coming from should give me some clue as to what bedding area they're choosing to stay at during the day. And so if I knew that a monster buck was hanging back out in this corner in a bedding area then that would be my priority stand location where I'd want to go back into the edge of that bedding area, walk in the opposite direction from the food. So in the morning when I'm walking in the dark, I'm not going through the food source. I'm coming in from the exact opposite way, thinking that that buck is somewhere between that food and his bedding. He might already be in his bedding, but this time of year there's a lot of social activity taking place in the morning. They're making rub scrapes, chasing does. And so I have a lot more of a likelihood of sneaking into the backside of a bedding area waiting for a buck to come back to me at this time of the year than I'd do October 10th, for example, or maybe even October 15th. And so uh, what I'm also doing is there's a pretty good value sit in the evening too. And so I'm looking at if I'm going to, if I'm going to sit three times and I'm going to say hunt two mornings and one evening, where can I sit in the morning that I'm not potentially ruining that evening sit if I happen to bump a deer and vice versa. So I'm really thinking about my next two to three sets out and making sure that you're moving from point A to point B, and then they're also moving from point C to point B, and I'm not getting into both those lines or one of those lines and destroying for that evening hunt. I'm saving another line of movement for, you know, the next morning or the next evening, and I'm trying to prioritize my sets that way so that I can maintain a high value and a fresh stand with each set. I also, in each area, uh, most of my really high-quality areas, I love to... Uh, 
really focus on, I'll usually have two to three complementary stands. And so one area I can think of in particular, I just can't wait to hunt this weekend. It'll be the first set. It's a triangle of stands. Um, the one I can hunt with southerly winds in the evening. The other one I can hit with, hunt with northerly winds all day, either morning or evening. And the other one has to be southwesterly winds to westerly winds in the morning. And so it gives me a great complement of stands. I can hunt just about any wind condition, morning, evening, midday. It doesn't really matter. If I know there's a big buck up there, which there, are, there always is, then I can go into one of those stands and, and uh, get a high-quality set. But after I sit in there that one time, I'll probably skip over and hunt another set, um, you know, for uh, for the next set or, you know, the following morning. So are you ever looking at um, an area, uh, a particular stand, and in setting a morning and an evening or an evening and a morning to try to catch movement coming back and forth if, in fact, the wind is the same? Yeah, and there's a lot of times where, you know, when, when we're out in the hill country, you can cheat the wind a lot, um, which is different than the flatland. I mean, I lived in Michigan for 40, 42 years, so it's pretty flat there compared to, you know, out here. But that being said, if you can get away with hunting both those mornings, there's times where, um, let's say, the, the total movement from where I think a buck bedding is to where I think he's really generally spending his evening and, and nighttime hours, um, it, let's say it's 400 yards long, that movement, or 300 yards well, I might come in the opposite direction, get a good morning hunt, and then leave that same way. And then I'll flip around in the afternoon for a nice three to four hour sit, actually walk in through the food source and get into my stand location and let my wind blow into a safe way. And so in that way, I'm hunting both ends of the movement. And if I feel that I got in non-invasively in the morning, I didn't, I didn't hear any spooks, I didn't uh, hear anything blown at me while I was on stand, and I thought I got away with a good, clean set. Um, I I will certainly uh, try that at times too. Are all your stands pre-hung then, or do you do do you set up a lot of stands throughout the year? Yeah, most of my stands are pre-hung. Um, okay. Now, when we go down to Ohio and hunt on public land, we have a few that we set a couple weeks ago, um, but at the same time, we have a lot of uh, trees that we've marked for uh, climbers. And so, and I do use climbers occasionally around here. Um, I like actually the comfort of a climber. I like the portability. I do not like the noise um, walking in with it. Um, you know, up here it already takes me 50 minutes to get to some of my stands walking up 400 feet in elevation. So to, to put a, a climber on my back along with uh, the extra weight I have on my front, <laughs> then uh, it, it gets me pretty tired out by the time I'm up there. So um, I try to have those pre-hung stands um, cleaned out and uh, ready to go, and then I'll use a uh, climber when I need that uh, flexibility. You mentioned that when you're setting up for those morning sets at this time of year, you like to be, I think you'd said, like 100 to 150 yards from where you think that bedding area is, trying to be kind of close into there. On the flip side, in the evening, are you relating more to, you, I know you mentioned that you're relating more to the food source, but I'm just curious about the relativity of being near that food source are you hunting right on the food or do you like to still usually try to stay pretty far off it i I know from some of the stuff i've read from you you talked a lot about the lines of movement and and placing Mm -hmm. yourself on that but i'd love to hear a little more about that and um you know and if that factors into your distance from food or distance from the prime food things like that well one of the things and kind of looking at absolutes too and one of those things is that absolute is where's the staging area so staging area to me is a is a really thick area, brushy area, 
high stem count density of regeneration, conifers, grasses, briars, kind of that mix where that last step of safety that a deer uh, will go through from its secure bedding, secure travel corridor, gets to that edge in that staging area, and when it pops out of there, it's really heading towards food. And so a lot of times, because of the stem density and the proximity to the food, those areas also become doe family group bedding areas. And so what I'm trying to do is um, really protect that. So I'm, I'm thinking of a spot that I hunted in the evening. It was in uh, 2011, shot a real nice five, six-year-old buck, um, beautiful buck on October 22nd. And I was able to position myself. There was bedding areas on benches down below the flat that I was on. And then there was a staging area that was probably about 70 to 80 yards from where my stand location was. And so if you can kind of imagine, I'm coming into this stand location to my left and approximately within 75 to 150 yards, there's high quality bedding. To my right, about 70 to 80 yards, there's a staging area with a high likelihood that there were some doe family groups bedding. And then about 30 yards out in the grass from there was the start of one of our food plots that was uh, that food plot, the deer could go in either direction for 550 yards one way or 400 yards in the other. And what I like about not having a big circular food plot at that point is once a deer entered that food source in the evening, it really stretched them out. So more deer would move, more deer. Those deer are pulled out in the middle of the field, away from the field edge. And, uh, and that, to me, helps more deer cycle through, too. So in that case, um, I actually shot that buck with maybe 45 minutes to go before dark as he was cruising between that staging area and the bedding area. And uh, it was kind of a dead area almost, a secure travel, but more of a travel corridor on benches and funnels than than actually coming into, you know, I was basically coming in between doe bedding and buck bedding on a more of an open flat um, and the doe bedding being the staging area. Now, I know you're enjoying this conversation with Jeff, but before we get to my next question, we need to pause briefly for a word from our sponsors of this podcast episode, Lacrosse Boots. And today, we're going to get a little bit of an education, as we have Ryan Cade, a former product developer for Lacrosse, explaining exactly what we whitetail hunters should be thinking about when choosing a new pair of boots. Yeah, so, you know, uh, the first thing you want to want to think about, obviously, is the season. Uh, if you're you're hunting the early season uh, or if you're hunting in, in that November or late season time frame, you know, insulation is a huge factor. Uh, the type of boot you're looking for as far as the warmth, warmth factor. So, uh, you know, early season, um, it's, it's great to, to look at to look at boots that don't have a lot going on from an insulation perspective, just so you don't get too sweaty. Um, you know, and, and, and keep yourself as comfortable as you can. So insulation is a, is, is a, is a big deal as you look to, to try to gear up on, on the footwear end of things. Um, the other thing, you know, that I like to really point people in a direction with is, is how much scent control is important to you uh, as a hunter. Uh, obviously, all of us really want to hunt the wind to start first and foremost, but outside of that, if you're really looking for something that has kind of maximum scent control, you want to look for a boot that has a lot of rubber all the way from, you know, from the bottom of the outsole all the way up to through the upper because rubber in itself is just naturally scent depressing. So it doesn't pick up scent and carry it with you as you move from your vehicle to the to the stand or, or to the blind or whatever. So, um, you know, I, as you're thinking about boots, if, if scent control is important, you know, more rubber is better from that aspect of it. If it's not, if you want something that's a little bit more breathable or a little lighter, 
uh, easier to roll down. There's there are options out there for many different brands that that you can just get some some neoprene in the upper from that aspect of things. So um, scent control obviously is is important. So there you go. Proper insulation and scent control are definitely two things to keep in mind when choosing the right boot for you. And if you are looking for new boots, you might want to consider a couple options from Lacrosse, such as the Alpha Burley Pro or the 4x Alpha, which have that full rubber, very scent-free construction, or the Arrowheads, which are part rubber and part neoprene, which I'm a big fan of because of their ridiculous level of comfort. So if you're interested in learning more about Lacrosse or any of these boots, visit lacrossefootwear.com. And now, let's get back to the show. So something you said there when you're talking about, you know, the the benches, I think, beneath you where that bedding was and you were up a little bit higher on a flat, it, it just made me think of something that I'm personally, you know, trying to get better at, especially I'm hunting this year in northeastern Iowa where it's, it's much more hilly, a lot more topography than I've ever hunted in before. Um, and something I'm still trying to get better at is understanding how to handle the wind in those situations because you know as I'm sure you both you and Dan have experienced in Iowa and other places Wisconsin um, you know things like the thermals and the way that topography adjusts or, or, or manipulates wind can make it really tricky to, to know exactly how to play the wind given those conditions can you talk a little bit about how you factor those types of things into making a decision about how to handle the wind how do you see the wind and that topography? kind of influencing each other well the the great thing about the wind in hill country in the morning is that as the temperatures are increasing the thermals are rising and so typically if you're above the deer you're fine Um, so that's kind of a general rule i've been able to sit into some pretty good bedding areas to where there's no way i could go in there in the afternoon because the deer would see me Um, but the deer are below me and then i can get in above them and with those thermal ri- thermals rising, even if that wind, we, we've had some great stands where um, literally the wind, you're, you're staring at a, a rock face to the west. The wind is coming out of the west. So if you're up high on that rock face 100 feet above, um, the wind would be right in your face. But down below in the morning, that wind is actually circling. And so we're facing the rock face. The wind is actually hitting us on our back coming from the east down below because it's rising back up against that rock face. We learned that the hard way coming out and starting in 2002 where, you know, we think we're watching this great bench in front of us for almost at eye level, and then a deer come through and we can feel that wind on our back, even though the wind's forecasted west, it's just blowing right back up at that bench. So we learned pretty quickly, you know, to move our stand on the bench. And consequently, Consequently, I think in that stand, we ended up shooting 13, 14 bucks, averaging four years old over a 12-year period. Jeez. And it was, and we were counting on that west wind. And the problem with that is if the point went down, uh, basically pointing northeast to our right when we we're facing that bluff, and if the wind was too much out of the north or northwest, the wind would actually whip around that point, and then again, with the same thought that it's tailing upward, it would actually tail up to the southwest. So... Um, you know, it's kind of like if, uh, you know, as far as respect to the wind and how it moves for the hills, it moves a lot like water. Um, if you can kind of imagine a wind slamming into the side of a point and then there being a, a real ripple effect and circular effect behind that point, that's basically what happens. On the other hand, when you flip over to the other side of that point and you're getting clean air from across the hollow, then it's a very, very predictable wind. Um, so on that back side, 
um, and the lee side um, can be pretty complicated um, with the angles that are wind, the wind's coming in at. But as long as you're staying above them in the morning, then you're fine. At the same time, if you try to go in there in the evening, the temperatures really a lot of times are not settling and not reducing until that last hour of light. And so unfortunately, you might have to get in there three hours, four hours before to make sure that you, you know, capitalize on some deer movement. So if that wind's not settling till that last hour, um, it can make uh, make for a really miserable sit if you planned on it settling down in the, in the quote, right location, but it didn't do so till the last hour of your sit. So that evening time, um, what I try to do is, you know, come in on a safe wind and then knowing that with those thermal settling, um, you can pretty much count on exactly, for example, which side of the ridge that wind is going to tail down to in the evening. And so you might have the wind falling down to the west behind, or the ridge falling down to the west behind you, and, and that wind is out of the south blowing from right to left, but as it gets closer to dark, you're going to find that wind tailing down behind you. So you need to consider that, too, in case deer are coming, coming in from behind you. It's almost like that ridge acts as a giant berm. Um, the wind blowing against it parallel, and then it'll drop down into the valley right at dark. So if you're expecting deer to come up from that valley, you might have a great sit for the first two hours, but that last hour of light, it might be blowing right at them. So there's a lot of different, uh, I mean, you really can study a topo, and you can kind of plan it and, and make some sense of where it's going to go, but then you get out there, that's that's a true test. And when you find cuts and draws and, and steep ravines, they have a, just like they would funnel water, and suck water into them and move water. Uh, it's the same way with the wind too. Yeah, this is one of those topics that can get my head spinning pretty quick. Um, yeah, <laughs> very much so. So I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but something you just said there um, related to these ridge lines. I just want to confirm something with you that I've been sitting thinking about a lot this past weekend. There's everybody kind of has their own take on how deer use the wind. You know, specifically a mature buck. How is a mature buck using the wind in his favor at certain times of the year? And I'm curious because I was sitting there this past weekend in Iowa trying to predict, okay, on November 2nd, how is a buck going to be using this ridgeline? How is a buck going to be using this point? And I'm sitting there trying to think through all these things, and I'm mentally filtering through, like, what 28 different people have told me and what I've seen and trying to figure out what's the right way to go about this. So can you share with us your opinion, Jeff, on how a mature buck would use a feature like a ridge line with a crop field on top and a valley down below? How's he using that at this time of year? And how's he using that during the rut and then the wind, I guess, is how's he using the wind with that topography at those two times of year? Well, that, that gets my head spinning too <laughs> on that topic <laughs> and, and uh, really opens up a can of worms too, because here's the thing too, if the main food source is in the valley versus the top, you know, a lot of people say, well, that, that buck, I've heard these things where the buck will bed three-quarters of the way up the hill or two-thirds of the way or whatever it is, but it really depends on where the food's at. So if the food's down from below, then he's going to bed up high if, and because the does are going to bed down below. And then if the food's up high, those does are going to bed around that high-quality food source, and then he's going to bed halfway down or maybe even all the way down on the bottom. And so what's interesting is the property we used for 12 years out here we had really specific mature buck bedding areas and the, and the bucks, because we had enough of them and there was an old age structure, we had one buck that we feel grew to be eight years old. We shot uh, a few that were in that five to seven year old range. They had very specific defined uh, bedding areas. And it was interesting because when they were really hopping and they were in those areas and they were moving a lot, um, 
it wouldn't matter which way the wind was blowing. They always stayed in that bedding area. They'd always travel from that bedding area to another food source. You could always count on that movements. The trick was um, having stand locations in place and set to take advantage of that movement regardless of what wind that you were presented with. And so it wasn't more about how is this buck going to move the wind to the you know, use it to his advantage is how can I actually even hunt in that area and not get busted? And so by by looking at it from that standpoint, if you know that box on that point, you know he's traveling um, to the top of that point going to a food source, then which side of the point do I need to be on for the wind? And it really is a question, let's say he chose to be on the other side, there's not a lot you can do about it if the wind's not in your favor. And so but what I found, and and this is typical of white tails anywhere, is they, they usually do, if they can if they can curl around and um, approach a food source from the downwind, they will. Uh, same with a bedding area. And so if you're on that downwind edge, I think it tilts the odds in your favor a lot too, to where if he does want to, because when he's back in his secure cover, he, he can, he, I think he feels pretty comfortable to move around with whatever wind, you know, this presented, whether he's moving with the wind, against the wind. But as he's getting closer to a risk area, a risk area meaning an open food source, uh, maybe even a transition area where he's picked up some hunter scent in the past. I think that's where he starts to curl around a little bit and use his wind to his advantage. And if you're on that downwind edge um, and you're in that thick line or slightly um, downwind of it, then you have a great, um, you know, real high likelihood that you're going to run into that miniature buck and he's going to be on the safe side of the wind as far as you being able to get a, get a good shot at him. I know that probably didn't answer your question directly, I know, but um, it really, there's a lot of variables that come into play. Um, yeah. I And it really depends on where the food's at. If it's, you know, you might have, we had a big flat on our last property with a lot of points and hollows. And it was interesting because the food was high on one side, then the, the box bedded low. And because it was, you know, low on the other side, then they bedded high. And it really depended, it was determined by how much uh, cover there was and, and where the does were bedding adjacent to that food and how much room the, the bucks had to bed behind them. But they would bed in the same spot, it seemed like, every day. You know. Um, are you ever seeing instances, me and Mark uh, talked a little bit about this last week, but are you ever seeing instances where the the deer are coming with the wind? Yes, I am. And it's... It's really when there's there's uh, when they really don't have any other choice. Um, but at the same time, that's where they might be coming with the wind out of their bedding area. But then if they can curl around and travel into the wind to get into the food source in the evening, or vice versa into the bedding area, then then you find them doing that. Into that, it's almost like they have a their stopping points are either the bedding area or the food. And when they get to those stopping points, it seems like that's when they want to curl into the wind. And, and make sure what they're moving into is safe. But, yeah, we've seen them move with the wind. Um, now, I do like if if the wind is a little bit at a slight angle so they can, they can have the illusion of having the wind in their face and I'm just off to the side in an area that I can blow my wind into safely, then um, I think that's a, that's a really good tactic. I think you're going to see more bucks in that case than, than not. This uh, This stuff is just endlessly 
both fascinating and frustrating for me. As <laughs> <laughs> it's like just always trying to figure it out. And it's like you, you, you come to believe one thing and then the next day you see a deer do something the opposite way and it squirrels everything up again. Yeah. Um, but man, it makes yeah. it fun to try to figure it out. That's for sure. <laughs> very fun. And that's where, you know, like we were sharing some, uh, you know, I was talking about some buck pictures that I had and we were sharing the excitement earlier in the week for what's yeah. coming ahead. And, and that's, I mean, I've, I've been doing this 30 years and I, it's like Christmas, you know, I can't wait. I'm, I'm sure my wife is sick of me talking. And, <laughs> and unfortunately you, you got to feel for her too. I mean, she, she sends out all my books. She has to proofread everything and edit everything. Um, she works for the printer. She, she's, she's not a hunter. She's went turkey hunting this year. She loves going out. She's been on a couple of the doe retrievals, even some tracking jobs this year. Um, I mean, she had to throw away part of her, or one of her pairs of sweats because she got it so ripped up and thorned <laughs> up. Her arms are cut up looking for my, my son's buck a few weeks ago. So she, she's forced into this. And, and in this time of year, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's an exciting time. And not being able to figure it out 100% is, is certainly a lot of the fun. Yeah. So let's fast forward a little bit. We've talked a little bit, we've talked about some things that apply to any time of year, but mostly been focused on, you know, the, the next 10 days from now, this pre-rep right. period, but let's get into November. Now we're talking more into the prime of what most of us think about when we consider writing action. For me, it's those, those first two weeks of November are kind of like my Super Bowl. is how I think a yeah. lot of us look at it. Um, to start, can you share with us your opinion on the timing of the rut. I know you alluded to it a little bit when you mentioned there are some theories about the moon. We've talked about a lot of the different theories, but I just want to hear from your take, Jeff. What's your take on what actually causes the trigger? What triggers the actual breeding and the rut? To me, it's the uh, reduction in light in the sky, in the atmosphere, whatever you want to call it, just the same as uh, the leaves changing. And um, just like the leaves changing, um, they can... I think they can be spurned on the, the change in the leaves, the color, at least them dropping off the, the trees a little bit earlier or later because of the frost, because of the temperatures, because of the wind. But basically those colors change at the same time every year, and I, I believe that you do too. I was real fortunate to spend a lot of time with John Azoga back in the last, late 90s, early 2000 period. He's a uh, you know nationally known research deer biologist. He probably has the most peer-reviewed articles out of anybody. And, you know, studying anything and everything. But he, he told me long ago, he talked about the breeding period in the UP in Michigan. And I believe, I'm not going to quote him because I can't remember the exact, but I believe it was November 11th that they found that 80% of the does were bred within a week to 10 days on either side of that. It might have even been a week on either side of it. And they could go back and, and they had ultrasounded uh, car-killed does. Um, they had you know, checked fetuses, and they were able to go back and, and unborn fawns and basically go back to the the, um, the breeding date and the date of conception, and they could actually figure out the exact day that that, that fawn was conceived. They charted those, and I don't know if they had 2,000 does, fawn combinations, and, and they were able to see over a 20-year period that there was just no correlation between the moon. Now, that being said, you know, what I find here in southwest Wisconsin is that the pre-rut is in the last 7 to t- 10 days. The the main portion of the rut is in the first 7 to 10 days of November. So last 7 to 10 days for pre-rut in October and then the first those first 7 to 10 days in November. Now, when I go down to southern Ohio, and if you stretch that line to southern Indiana, southern Illinois, over into portions of Pennsylvania, maybe even over into Maryland, Delaware, and then over into Kansas, uh, Missouri, um, that line is is about a 
you know, 10 days later. could be a week later, could be two weeks later. But that pre-rut, um, instead of starting the 22nd, the 25th of October, 27th, um, it's going to start more like the 5th, the 2nd, the 1st. Um, they're just a little bit behind the further south you could go. But what I find is consistently the same. Now that, you know, Mark, you might be on one property five miles away, and I'm over here and I'm seeing tons of rutting activity. You know, I'm seeing rub scrapes and mature bucks flying around. You're not over there, and I think that it just boils down to if you don't have any mature bucks that are residing and have chosen to call that fall cover that you have their home during that season, then you're not going to see any activity until that peak rut. And and so that's why there could be a huge variance just from even a mile apart where someone has, you know, it's more of a have and have not uh, type situation. But once we get into the pre-rut, that's that's where the, the fun begins. But at the same time, that to me is a, a time of where it's more undefined. Um, you know the bucks are going to be moving, but are they moving on my land, yours, or you know, are they around home, or you know, are there are there girls running out at the bar and they have to go to the next one? <laughs> so that's uh, that's that's kind of the way I look at that. And yeah, sometimes you yeah, got to do it. <laughs> so it's that's you know in in that respect, that's kind of what it feels like to where you know who knows what's going to happen then. And of course, when you get in the post rut, that's when there's no girls anyways, you know, anywhere. And those old box really still have that taste and they really want to go find one. Um, and they're, and they might even get in some aggressive, really bad fights too, because they're, those other old dudes are looking around too. And, and, uh, and they tend to run into each other and they're willing to move long distances too at that time. So, so here's my, here's my, it's all, it's all of our scene. Yeah, <laughs> it is. <laughs> So what I'm curious about then is as we get into that time period where you mentioned it get, becomes a little more undefined uh, when that pre-rut to rut period starts kicking off and deer start moving a little bit more, chasing the does or looking for the does and stuff like that. At that time frame, your philosophy related to you know finding the high value sits and paying attention to the cold fronts and the wind and all that stuff, does that go out the window for you or are you still paying attention to that and applying it in early November? How does I'm, I'm definitely still applying it because... I look at it like every day during the week is not a good day, you know, it's, uh, or not a great day. My, my, uh, lease partner, Carl, he'll drive up to Georgia and he'll hunt eight days in a row. And we figure there's probably two or three really good days. There's two or three middle value days. And then there's two or three days that he might even just spend one or two days outside of the woods, letting the, uh, the stands improve and, and not overusing stands on a smaller property. And so I'm still riding that roller coaster of the, uh, of the, uh, cold fronts. And you'll find the cold fronts are usually coming through every five to ten days, so they're pretty uh, pretty reliable. And, of course, if it's just a decent cool day and during the rut, that's certainly better than that same condition in the middle of October. You know, there's, there's definitely a higher value for placing priority on getting in the woods during the rut. Uh, but at the same time, if you can afford to be flexible, then, then I still do. At the same time, um, it might be that you can choose three weekends in a row to hunt. And so... Let's say you could choose two days on either side of that weekend to hunt. Well, it might be cooler on Monday, Tuesday. Well, then I'd, I'd stay out of the woods on Thursday, Friday, switch those vacation days. And um, and so even just looking at I can only hunt long weekends, even just one day off, um, you might be better off taking a Monday versus a Friday um, just depending on the weather. So even then you can let your weather, you know, let the weather guide you a little bit and uh, um, and, and really prioritize your the value of your sets. From a from a pressure standpoint, um, you go into uh, 
I guess an evening hunt and then a morning hunt in the same stand location, let's say. Do you feel that after after those two sits that the tree stand is then bad because the deer have maybe worked their way back? I guess how many times in a stand do you think you can get away with it before it starts going downhill? Well, you know, a lot of that depends on a lot of these questions too depend on a lot of other factors, but let's I'll give a couple examples. Let's say I know guys, a lot of guys in the Michigan area, for example, they might have a 40-acre parcel. They're really narrowing it down to they want to go into the middle of the rut. You know, let's say their favorite time to go is on November 5th, November 3rd, November 7th, even if they're choosing a high-weather, you know, high-value weather day. But they're going to go into their favorite stand in the middle of that 40. They're going to go in an hour before uh, light, maybe two hours. They're going to sit, and they're not going to move all day. Well, even then, they're still their downwind scent's going to spook some deer. Um, because their tree stand is in the middle of the woods, there's a great chance they're going to leave scent in out, even if they just happen to brush it, you know, against a, a twig or some grass on the way in and out. Um, so to me, that's a lot more invasive. So the quality and the value of that stand location uh, does not have the staying power, as opposed to let's say someone's hunting just a narrow funnel in between a couple of high-quality bedding areas. And you can come in from one way or the other. You're coming through deerless open area to get there. Your scent is always secure on the downwind because maybe it's blown into a pond or a cliff or an open hardwood forest, you know, somewhere, even a pile of spruce or something where there's, it's not holding deer. So it's a pretty safe scent. And in that case, you no, know, I would rather skip around and try out different stand locations. But that being said, if you had to sit, you know, sit in a stand and set up like that multiple days in a row, you're a lot better off in that situation than going into the middle of your 40 and taking that all day sit on a more invasive um, set. So, you know, typically I look at it like if a stand will sit for a week or two um, in between sets and you had a pretty non-invasive sit, then it's still a good quality stand. Um, but that being said, I think probably 75-80% of my uh, mature box, and I'm even thinking back, you know, up to the top 25 box have been shot um, the first time and a few on the second time going into the stand. Uh, very few on that third, fourth set. Do you think that if you spook a buck, let's say going in to an initial set or he busts you while you're in the stand, do you think that buck is long gone or what's your opinion on if they're coming back or in, until they're back into the, the swing of things again? I think there's a big difference whether you're, you're walking into an afternoon set, it's 2 o'clock, it's getting dark at 6, and that big monster you're after, you, you go over a little bit of a knoll, and he's there 30 yards away staring right at you. Um, he's probably not going to be back there for a long time. Um, on the other hand, I had this happen the other morning where I walked in fairly early, and when I went across a slight opening in the woods um, where – a certain four-year-old buck hangs now. It's a really beautiful eight-point that I've passed up a couple times. He was, I, I just had this giant buck or giant deer run away. When he's running through the brush, he blew and blew and blew, and then he went down lower, and then he blew again, and it's that deep, just deep blow of an older deer, and my heart kind of sank. I thought, man, which, which mature buck was that? There was no little deer with it, so it wasn't a pile of does and fawns. It wasn't a doe and fawn all by itself, sounded big. I even tried to listen for antlers crashing against brush. I couldn't hear it. I have a trail camera there. So I went, and um, two days later, I snuck up in that area. It's by logging road. It's pretty easy to get in and out, non-invasive. Uh, my son and I went up there. Checked that card. Sure enough, 
um, when I walked in at 10 after 6 or 5, whatever it was, he was there at like 5.58 in the morning getting his picture taken. So I know that was him. That being said, that evening, he came into that, that same little area, got his picture taken about a half hour before dark as he was cruising back onto the property. And I think, you know, I went in in the dark. I don't think he smelled me. He certainly couldn't see me. He heard me just stepping as quietly as possibly in the, in the sandy trail. And so, you know, in that case, a lot different than going out at 2 in the afternoon and him just looking at me uh, when I walked in. So he came right back. And I've, I've had one mature buck come back after I messed up shooting at him and uh, didn't get him. He came back about 10 days later and um, I ended up shooting him in that in that same spot. But even then, he stopped at about 30 yards and started walking around me. Um, so he, he remembered that after about 10 days. So pretty interesting stuff to see that, how they can start. Well, whether you call it remember or associate an area with danger, whatever it is, how they can, they can learn it's, that's definitely clear. I think is that they can learn where danger is definitely. and they learn how to avoid it. Or in some cases, they certainly though, do. in some cases they can determine what level of danger there is. So, yes. Yeah. And you know, they, they have sight, sound and sense. So, um, I'm not sure which one they place their priority on, but when they smell you, see you, and hear you, that's a really bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> as opposed to as opposed to just hearing some light steps that they think there's danger, you know, when when that buck, you know, when that buck the other morning when he ran and then he stopped, he ran and then he stopped, he ran, stopped, and blew and blew. To me, he really didn't know what was going on, or he would have just been gone. I might not even hurt him. He would have just been gone. He would have just slipped away. Um, so that's that's something to think about too. Usually, they they take off if they're if they really if they really feel they're in danger. Yeah, that's a great point. So in the rut then, let's actually talk about how we're hunting. Um let's start mornings and then let's talk about mornings and evenings separately and then I'm curious about that midday point too, but I do know you've talked a lot about how much you love morning sits during the rut. Can you tell us about that? Why do you love morning sits during the rut so much and then where specifically do you like to hunt at that time of the year? Well, you know again, I think it all boils down to uh um, temperature and and again, if there's that full moon rising, I think they'll be they'll move a little bit later in the morning too. But we're shooting the bulk of our bucks between two and four hours after first light. We're back in those bedding areas, and and if you think about it, you could have a morning where it's 27 degrees at daybreak. It's still it's still in the 30s at noon. It might even rise up to 57 degrees in the afternoon, but it's still relatively cold all morning long. And so when we look back at our trail cam photos we're finding a lot of our buck pictures are from 55, 57 degrees on down. And so we're not getting a lot of mature bucks during the middle of the day at 70 degrees and 60 degrees and 80 degrees. And um, and so you really see that they do seem to want to move a lot more when it's cool out, uh, whether it's windy or not. And uh, so that's I like placing that high priority in the in the morning time. And then in the evening, those temperatures aren't changing until that, that last hour. I think they're for the most part in the middle of the day, a lot of times sitting there. And, uh, and so, you know, that's my time to move to an evening stand or if I have an all day sit, I'll, I'll sit it out. But, um, but yeah, that we, I place a high priority on the morning, just to me, the hours of opportunity that you have compared to the, uh, evening, especially back in those bedding areas where they're cruising all morning long. So those morning sits, you mentioned bedding areas. Are you, are you hunting the down end, the downwind side of a bedding area? Are you right in the bedding area? Are you hunting funnels between? Can I have more detail on that? I'm curious. Sure. There's a, there's a one stand in particular I can think of where we're coming into the, the bottom area, and we're coming into a point, and there's a large bedding area around the corner. 
um, around the point, and then there's another one off to the left. So basically we're in between that bedding area. Terrible spot in the evening. Um, I think we shot one mature buck there over all the years. Uh, but in the morning, those bucks are down low with the big food sources up high, and they're cruising in between those bedding areas. They don't cruise in the, in the October low. They're not out there in September. They're not there in the evening because all the deer are focused towards the tops. But in the morning, we're right in between those bedding areas. We're probably, you know, say 70 to 100 yards on one side is a great bedding area that expands for five acres. And then over to the other side, we have a series of, of bedding areas and benches that, uh, that you know, might be a half acre, acre in size. And we're just getting in between those. Now, sometimes um, with the ridge tops that we have around here, I'm going in and sitting right in the middle of the bedding area. It might be on a point. And once I get there, my wind is safe. I'm trying to come in on the, the side where I don't expect as much deer, so I'm not laying a scent trail for them to find. But I'm sitting right in the middle of the bedding area with the thermals rising on my side and blowing out towards an open hollow. Now, that's something you can do as much in Michigan or, or an area that's flat, for example. Um, but uh, it, but a lot of times I'm right on the edge. Um, I'm pretty close, or I'm in between two really high-quality bedding areas. Um, but, uh, you know, really it depends on the situation, but, you know, focusing on those bedding areas. Uh, you know, look at it this way. If you have three bedding areas in a row, um, instead of sitting on the last one, right on the edge, hoping that, you know, you're kind of laying, playing all your cards for that one bedding area, um, I'd rather be in the middle one, for example. So I'm in between, I'm getting the movement from possibly three different bedding areas and through that middle one, as opposed to staying all the way on the end. So it's all about creating opportunity. It really depends on the situation, you know, how how the bedding areas lay out. Makes sense. Do you... Do you, I know you mentioned you'll lots of times hunt a different place in the morning versus the evening. How often do you actually hunt though the entire day? Um, I hunt the entire day. I'm trying to think last year. Um, you know, I might've hunted, uh, seven to 10 all day sits, but, um, all but two of those were in different stands. So I'll actually just get down and move about, you know, a five, ten minute walk to a different stand that I might think is better towards evening or even might even take a half hour walk to get there. Um, but I might be in the woods all day. But as far as sitting in the same stand, rarely just because of the fact that if I'm sitting near food, then that morning time might not be that great because they're back in the bedding areas. If I'm staying in the bedding areas all day, then the closer it gets to dark, the value of my set um goes drastically down as those deer are going towards the food or focusing on the food so when you get in the peak rut and there's more midday movement then i'm trying to focus on an area say downwind of food um, possibly between bedding areas so i'm trying to get an x of deer movement i'm trying to get movement that might go side to side i might get movement going back and forth between food and bedding so i'm kind of in the middle of it all with my scent blowing into a, a steep ridge or hollow or maybe off to the, to the one side or the other where, where I can expect to sit all day, throw my scent into safe areas, maybe even with a changing wind, and then still take advantage of both cruising um, activity and uh, bedding to uh, food activity or vice versa. So that's the one time where, you know, during that peak rod and a little bit sometimes in the post route where I'll take a, I'll take a seat uh, all day. Uh, maybe in, even in the same stand where I think I'm just in that really fantastic cruising area that also relates to food and bedding movement at the same time. So here's something I've I've been 
I've wondered a lot about and, and had different thoughts on when you are going to do that switch from the morning to the evening stand, what time of day do you think is the safest to switch stands? During you know, the that's, a, that's a good feel question too because there's times where I'll even say, well, I'm, I'm going to switch about 11 or I'm going to switch about noon. Um, I can remember one time we were, we were hunting during the rut and it was a four-day hunt. It was the first four days in November. I think it's going back to about 2003. And the temperatures were in the teens in the morning. Um, they got up to the low 30s during the day and sometimes the 20s. We sat dark to dark every day. I think we saw 29 bucks between the two of us, and we didn't see a buck between noon and 1.30. It just happened to be that way, but we see a pretty light period during that. We don't have a lot of pressure, so there's not guys moving and bumping deer, um, so those deer were getting out at that time. But there's a lot of times where I'm planning on sitting tall, especially during the rut. Um, like when I go out this this weekend, I'll probably sit until 11, maybe noon. Um, but at the same time, it might be that it's 11 o'clock and I haven't seen a deer in two and a half hours. And I'm a lot more likely to get out then and go switch to another stand um, just out of sheer boredom at that point or I just want to change the scenery or something um, than uh, actually sticking it out till my designated noon time that I, that I had originally set. Um, on the other hand, I might say I'm going to get out at noon, and then I'm, I just had a pretty decent buck go through at 20 to 20 to 12. Well, then I I probably sit another hour and uh, just see if there's any other act, action going on at that time in that area. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, I'd say around 11 or 12, especially during the rut this time of the year uh, when it was October lull, I was sitting for about three hours. I I kind of have a three hour. I love to sit at least three hours in the daylight, whether it's you know, if I'm getting in there 45 minutes early and then I'm I'm sitting once day breaks for three hours, uh, same in the afternoon, um, and then as it gets more towards the pre-rut and peak rut, I'm sitting a lot longer hours to, to the point of just the only time I might not be sitting is moving from one stand to the next. Okay, okay. Well, we... You know, you know real quick, Mark, yeah. too, you know, I'm probably running out of time here, but I was just going to mention some of those stands that you're sitting in the, the bedding area stands in the morning, they can be pretty darn good up till two in the afternoon, one or something like that. And so, if I'm moving to more a pure evening food stand, I might actually sit in that till mid afternoon, just because you know that value is going to remain pretty high, and there's a big difference from the stand that I'm going to in value too at that time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, like like you guessed, Jeff, we are coming up on time. Um, so, Dan, do you have a final question for Jeff before we wrap things up? Anything else in your mind we need to know? Well. Any advice on how to handle the wife? <laughs> I think that's funny. I think we already touched on that a little bit. It's kind of about, uh, um, you know, balancing that. And it goes back to prioritizing your sets, um, placing a high value on your sets, and, and knowing that sometimes less is more. Um, if you, you know, one high-quality day uh, can be worth a lot more than, you know, several low qualities or medium quality days. And so it might be that, you know, you have that three-day weekend. Um, Saturday's going to top out at 82 degrees. There's 35-mile-an-hour winds. It's just a really poor day. You already took Friday off. So, you know, just say, well, I'm going to hunt on Friday and then tell your wife, hey, let's do something together on Saturday. Is there anything you want me to do? Um, you know, really, she's going to look at it like, wow, you're, you're taking this time in the middle of the rut, in the middle of the season, and <laughs> and uh, but you know that Sunday is a really high-valued day, so you're kind of balancing that where you know you need to be in the stand on Sunday. There's no no getting around that. <laughs> and, um, and so I think that's the way, and that, and that also that approach works with your boss, uh, maybe your workplace, uh, depending on uh, your work situation. 
Yeah. Great advice. Very, very sound advice. I think, uh, me, well, all, all of us can, can apply that to some degree. That's for sure. Uh, now here's my final question, Jeff. Sure. We've only like scratched the very tippy top of the surface when it comes to some of these ideas and these topics. And I know you've written a lot about these things in more detail in your two books and your website and a third upcoming project. Can you tell us where can we go right now to learn more and what should we be looking forward to here in a couple of weeks? Um, well, you can visit my website, uh, com. If you can remember my name, Jeff Sturgis, you'll, you'll run into me that way online too. At the same time, I have a Facebook uh, page with the same same name that's real active. I try to get all my blogs on there. In the upcoming two weeks, um, I have a release of my third book, um, and that should be released early to mid-November. Um, the details of that are on my site, but the name of it is Mature Buck Success by Design. The first buck was more the habitat and structure of the hunting plan, even public land hunting and kind of setting up that whole hunt. The second book was uh, relating to food plots and the design and strategy of food plotting. And then this third book is purely about scouting, preparing, and harvesting mature bucks and, and going over a lot of the details that we talked today and uh, talked today about and uh, greatly expanding on them. Awesome. Well, I can't wait for that book. Uh, I will definitely be checking out. And to the other things you mentioned, the website and your previous two books, for everyone listening, if you haven't already, You've got to check these out. They are some of the best resources I've found when it comes to hunting mature bucks, to managing a property and improving it. And uh, you can even apply a lot of things, especially in the first book that Jeff talks about. You can apply that even to hunting you know, someone else's land that you just have permission on or public land, all the above. They are concepts that, as you saw today in hearing from Jeff, that really can help a lot. So Jeff, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Uh, I know that I'm even more excited now than I was an hour ago because this is stuff that I can apply and I think might help me kill big deer in Iowa this year. Well, that sounds great, Mark. It's been great with you and Dan. I always have a great time with you guys, so I appreciate you having me back. And, uh, hey, this is an exciting time of the year, so um, look forward to what's going on with all of us in the next week and look forward to hearing about it, Mark. Absolutely. Well, well, Dan had to drop off, but I know that he feels the same way. So good luck, Jeff. Uh, Keep us posted and uh, we'll hopefully be talking to you again soon. That sounds great. Thanks a lot, Mark. All right. Have a good one, Jeff. So there you go. Another episode of the Wired to Hunt podcast is in the books. And before we sign off, though, a couple quick things. First, a big thank you to our partners who helped make this show possible. So big thank you to Sitka Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Lacrosse Boots, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. Also, with the Super Bowl of the deer hunting season coming up soon, as we've been talking about, it's a great time now to get geared up with some Wired to Hunt swag. So be sure to check out wiredtohunt.com shop to check out our hats, shirts, and decals. And FYI, we're going to be having some new trucker hats, flat bills, and hoodies available in just a matter of days. So please, help support the show and look good doing it this hunting season by picking up some Wired to Hunt gear. Again, wiredtohunt.com slash shop. Thanks in advance for checking that out. Finally, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't yet, and if you could leave us a rating or review on iTunes, We'd, of course, really appreciate that as well. So with all of that said, good luck this coming weekend. 
things are going to be exciting. So get out there, shoot straight, and until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.